Hey, listeners, to help us keep delivering in-depth wine business content, we've carefully selected partners for our show that we think will resonate with you. This episode's partner is Repor, the best way to save wine without planning ahead. We have Elizabeth Dames, sommelier in Atlanta and owner of Wine and Twine Consulting. Elizabeth, what's your best Repor story? Uh, This is super easy to answer. So it was with Banquets, and we had this bottle of tea from Brunner's Chardonnay from Alto Adige. So it's unoaked Chardonnay, so super bright and crisp. And I found that that is the type of wine that typically gets oxidized really quickly. And we had dated the bottle and put in a repour, and there was only about three ounces left in the bottle. I checked it two months later while I was counting inventory, thinking, ugh, I'm going to have to throw this down the drain. I tasted it. I'm not kidding. It was as if I had just uncorked it. And I was literally blown away. And I tell as many people as possible this story because it's so legit. Learn more at repour.com, R-E-P-O-U-R.com or find the link in our show notes. And for a 30-minute overview of all things Repor, listen to episode 24, where CEO Tom Lutz gives us all the details. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have Aikimi Dubose, the co-founder and executive director of The Roots Fund. Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there like a round of applause that goes on in the background? All the listeners do it as they're listening, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for having me. The Roots Fund is a nonprofit organization focused on securing the pathway for the Black, Indigenous, and Latinx community in wine. Can you give us a little bit of background about the backstory of The Roots Fund, when it was started, why it was started? The best story would be Carlton and I are longtime friends. And for a while, I had left the corporate environment about two years ago. And he and I had been chatting about me getting into the nonprofit space because he and I actually went to college off of scholarships from another nonprofit called CCAP. So that's how he and I are connected. And I was trying to really work on building myself more established in the nonprofit space. I'm really passionate about community work and helping communities of color and just young adults in general. He and I were talking about that. At the same time, Carlton had put up a post on social media about his personal experience in the wine industry. And then began a conversation with himself and Tahira and kind of the three of us connected and said, how can we use all of our superpowers, you know, and build this wine Avengers and get the word out and really secure some space for people of color. And that's really when it came about. It just happened to be a midst of this big civil rights movement is probably what I would refer to it as more than just BLM, of where the world is right now and how we could change the wine industry per se for communities of color. Just to clarify real quickly for our listeners, Carlton being Carlton McCoy, who's the CEO of uh, Hype Sellers in Napa and was the guest on the show with with Robert for the year-end episode, Hindsight is... 2020, which I was having a baby at the time, so I, I missed, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carlton actually now is the CEO of Lawrence Family Group, which actually oversees several wineries in Napa. And Tahira Habibi is the owner of Hugh Society, which is one of the largest Black wine professional networks, but more recently has opened its location chapters to everyone who's interested in wine. So that's super awesome. Great. It was obviously started in 2020, but was this something that you guys were planning on a start or is it something that just, uh, I mean, obviously starting a nonprofit during a pandemic is an interesting time to get something like this off the ground. 
starting a nonprofit during a pandemic, being a consultant myself, if anyone would have come to me and asked me, should I do this? I would have laughed hysterically and told them to save their money. I'm not going to charge them a fee. Let me give you some free advice. Don't do it. A big part of nonprofits is you thrive off of donations. So if we're in the middle of an economic crisis as a world, not even just the U.S., it was the entire world where we're facing this economic breakdown, particularly the wine industry with tariffs and taxes and things of that nature, everyone told us we were foolish. This is not a good idea. But I actually saw it as the perfect moment because a big part of starting a nonprofit is actually doing the legwork on the back end, the programming, figuring out your vision, how you're going to execute it, what can you actually accomplish over time. So this was actually the ideal time for us. As a nonprofit, there's usually a board. I'm just curious if, outside of yourself and Carlton and Tahira, who else is on the board? So I'm going to give you a little bit of nonprofit one-on-one. Keep your board small. (laughs) Small boards, less ego, more active members as well. So with our nonprofit board, we plan on expanding this year. The world should anticipate two members joining our board. And I can just give you a hint to one of them. He resides in France. He is also one of our partners. And we hope to have a more official announcement in the next 60 days. I hope he makes really amazing burgundy wine. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that he's somewhat involved in this business somehow. I think he'll be a, a great addition, has already proved to be a great asset to this organization. But we are looking to build a board of effective people. And if anyone knows anything about boards, you can think of a million people who are wealthy or prestigious in a particular field and they're on a board, but they don't really do any work. They have no idea what the board does. They just show up to the galas and get gift bags and say, hey, I'm on the board. We really want to create an accountability structure and do something different than your average nonprofit. And a big part of it is having active board members. Right. And, and those active board members need to continue to push forward the mission and vision of the organization. Could you give us an overview of what is the mission and vision of the Roots Fund? Sure. It's really simple for us. The Roots Fund is created to empower the BIPOC community in the wine industry by providing financial resources through educational scholarships, through mentorship and job placement. And you talk about the Roots Fund, quote unquote, doing the work to create inclusivity. Maybe you could elaborate on what you mean. I'm an actionable person. And I think a lot of times when we take on a cause, you ever notice there's a lot of hype to rally around it and then everyone's into it. And then the next hot thing comes and everybody forgets about it. Or we set goals that are like, oh, in five years, we're going to do this. You know what I mean? And in 10 years, we'll do this. Ideally, in 15 years, I hope we don't exist. I hope we become the Roots Fund, the community, the network, where people can just congregate and get together. When I say doing the work, we are doing actionable things right now. Like there isn't a deadline that we have in place that isn't being accomplished in the next 14 months. Like we set two month, three month goals. We try different things. We partner with different people. We try to do our best to create actionable change that happens fast, but it's long lasting. So it's really risky because we're looking for short term results that last long term. So it's very aggressive with our programming. The turnaround time is very quickly. We managed to get that done on a very small team. So, you know, stepping back a moment in terms of the problem that the the Roots Fund is trying to address, can you talk a little bit about diversity, the lack of diversity in the wine industry? So you got to think about the wine industry, like many other things in this country, many other things in the world. It's been a system that's been based to basically prevent certain groups of people from really having success. 
And what that means, it may not be a written policy anywhere. That just means the opportunities are not prevalent. So for example, there are many communities of color that don't have any education about wine. They don't know about the opportunities or the careers in wine. They don't know anything about that industry. When you look at the Latinx community, you know, I've had conversations with multiple groups who shall remain nameless, who refer to people as, oh, they pick grapes during the harvest. Like that is where we have been funneled to think that's where these communities of color exist. When we think about the indigenous people who are the first people on this land, who probably know how to cultivate its growing practices better than anyone that's been here, being not as involved in this major industry that's over $70 billion deep in cash every year just in the U.S. market alone. How do we get those communities engaged? So there's been a big lack of diversity. A lot of wine companies, distributors included, wine businesses are not even recruiting from these communities of color, whether it be HBCU or looking at student groups at different other prestigious universities that house people of color. Like, how do we bridge that gap? There's been a big lack there. So we're taking on a big chunk trying to solve for many things here. We're trying to create a space for people of color. We're trying to get schools as well as wine businesses to say, hey, we need to change our recruitment strategies and efforts. We need to break these systems that we've been using for years. And three, we need to think about inclusivity differently. I think when we say inclusive now, or even the term when they say DEI, which is just diversity, equity, and inclusion, we think about one thing. We're forgetting about the ownership part of equity. When we think inclusivity, we're always like, oh, let's bring people of color into our space. That's not what it's about. We need to change the mindset. Inclusivity is about creating a new space. If we bring people of color into the same space that we've continuously been running, nothing is going to change. We're just going to program those people of color to think the way we've been thinking and telling everyone this is the way. Inclusivity needs to change to we need to create new spaces. Bring these people of color in, hear their experiences, look at their skill sets, look at what we've been doing, throw it in the trash, get a new whiteboard and say, hey, we're all in this room together. How do we go forward? That's creating new space. And I think that when providing the resources and you have the accompaniments to really grow these different spaces and wine, we'll definitely create some change. So riffing on that a minute. So obviously industry is quite large and there's many different facets to it. So if you look at like there's obviously producers, the growers, the hospitality, whether it's in a tasting room or in a restaurant as the Psalm Circles. But then there's the consumers as well, the people who are drinking the product. So you're, you're basically trying to address that for all those levels or just parts of it first? I'd be foolish to think we're going to address it all. I think that what makes the strategy a little different is we're trying to peek into each one of those spaces in a different way with a small impact that will be long lasting. So if we think about communities of color, a big initiative we have coming up this year is our high school enrichment program. So it includes taking students from high school, large city areas out to community colleges and colleges that have wine programs educating them that on half a day. Then the other half a day is spent at a winery actually talking to people doing these different jobs. Then these students have all of this running through their mind. The next evening, the Roots Fund holds a tasting for their parents. So guess what? We're not only tapping into this future generation, we are talking to the older generation that's been set in their ways, has one theory of wine. We're educating them with tasting, but we're also telling them about the opportunities that we can help their child grow in this market and become someone that is highly productive, creating more space in wine, being more educated about wine. So we're tackling kind of both of those things. And at the same time, we're having these same type of enrichment conversations with wineries, with distributors, with hospitality programs, 
with college programs. Because there's a lot of wine college programs that aren't diverse either. So there's an issue there. How are we creating a space and creating more knowledge and awareness around what you can be in the wine business? How do we reach out to those communities? I remember when I was in high school, you had colleges come to the high school and tell us, hey, you should be this when you grow up. I don't ever remember seeing a wine program. They never came to my high school in New York City. So I think it's having those conversations with them. So we're tackling this three-way prong all the time, but just a little bit at a time. And I feel if we make an impact one way, it'll continue to spread. And now we have people coming to us. Hey, how can we sign up with your high school program? I'm like, we're only launching in two cities this year. We'll see what 2022 begins. But already we're getting it out there, the word out there that we're doing this and people want to be involved. Great. I was asking Peter prior to the starting if if we thought that the wine industry was better or worse off than some other industries for diversity. And I think just from optics wise, we, we definitely felt like that was. But I'm curious based on your opinion, like, is it worse off than a lot of other industries in terms of diversity and inclusion? I think when it comes to hospitality specifically, like if I think of the restaurant, culinary, beverage side, maybe the wine industry is worse off in that manner because you'll find more chefs of color, you'll find more restaurant managers and things of color, more than you would if you just drove down a street in Napa and stopped at a couple wineries. If you put that against restaurants and you put that against the culinary world, then the wine industry is at the bottom of the barrel. But then I look at the consumer purchasing power of the communities of color, particularly just the black community, for example, on wine and spirits. It's a big market that could be conquered that's just not being advertised to. You know, it's not being educated about, but this wine business is becoming very popular with like, for instance, athletes and things like that, who are primarily of color. You look at the NBA, the amount of wine clubs, the amount of support that we're reaching out to NBA players is unreal. But in their communities, you go into New York City, even New York and Brooklyn, you go into a liquor store, you're not finding any decent wine. Yeah. No offense to any brands, I'm not going to name anything, but on <laughs> average, the wine you find in those liquor stores is under $12. May not be right. anything reputable of anything you want to pick up and bring to dinner because they feel like I shouldn't be selling that in this community. That's why you have success with a lot of these little wine shops that are popping up because there's a need for it. It's just no one's grasping that market. Yeah, I know Liz Tosh, uh, co-author of a book with me at Sonoma State, has done some research around that and there was... I think it was like 11% of the wine market is purchased by people of color. And mm-hmm. the representation on the wine side is much less than 11%, I think. So less than that, 5%. From that perspective of people working there versus the customer base, there's a bit of misalignment currently. But I like that idea, or I don't know if it, it, it's a start where people like the athletes and celebrities and whatnot of color, I see some parallels to the wine market for Asians, like like me, where it starts out sort of at the higher end, the the more wealthy, right? And then the, there's like a trickle down effect, where even like you know Yao Ming has a winery in Napa, things of that nature, where people see it as something that they want to aspire to. Then they start to learn about it, and you know now China is one of the world's largest wine markets. Yeah, and I think that's what's really going to change it, especially for us. I mean. Some of the athletes that were, we've even started to do some work with Dwayne Wade, and naturally I know more are going to come on board and working with some other athletes as well that are jumping on. I think it'll be a big year for us when people see that, especially our young generation who idolize a lot of these celebrities. 
it'll definitely change the way they perceive, hey, maybe this could be a career. I can't play like LeBron, but um, <laughs> maybe I can start a wine club because LeBron yeah. says, you know, this is awesome. And it's also a very lucrative position financially if you're studying and you're good at it. You can mm-hmm. do really well for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all want to drink like LeBron and Carmelo Anthony. Uh, it's, uh, it's something we asked, you know, Will Blackman in our episode since he started the Wine MVP Wine Club. And he's definitely trying to make, he's working really on wine communication, like in terms of like his wine club. It's not just about the wines. It's actually like how you talk about wine and taking it from a different angle. And I think that's really interesting. But then you have LeBron and Carmelo, you know, where they're, they're drinking like crazy wines. Sure, that's aspirational for some people especially if they can't play basketball like them. But it's a totally different angle between those two comparisons between Will Blackman and the NBA players. Of course. I mean, you look at Will, he's really studying, looking at the history. He's really getting into what the wine is. You know, he's putting time and effort into education rather than, you know, someone else who is just appreciating, you know, this is good wine. Someone's told me about this. I'm getting minimal education. More of this is an entertainment experience more than knowledge. Yeah. So thinking now a little bit about what are the solutions that we can put in place to change the wine world on this? What are some of the pragmatic ways that people can make a difference for the Roots Fund or to the cause in general? If you're a person of color, I definitely tell people just reach out. You'd be surprised of how we can assist you. If you are a winery, a wine business program, a distributor, hospitality or a restaurant, look at your systems. Educate yourself. Use your Googles, as my grandma always says. Use your Googles. Educate yourself. Look around the room. If you look at the table and see that there's no one of color there, you have to say, what have I done to support this narrative? Because it's here. I'm a part of it. How can I change it? Is it my hiring practices? Is it my handbook? Where am I looking to source out these candidates? You know, and you got to figure that out for yourself. The Roots Fund is not here to educate. We often get people reach out to us, but I can't change the way you've been broken for so many years. If you don't see what that is and can't educate yourself, we can't help you. What we can help you with is we can help connect you to people of color who are qualified for these positions. We can help you with internships. So we have to think about the wine world like this. There are smaller brands. There are larger brands, smaller distributors, bigger distributors. All of them can produce the same work. The only thing that may vary is the amount that they're fundraising. So I've got smaller brands who come to us and want to dedicate a SKU and say, hey, I can only hire seasonal workers. I've got five employees that work all year round, but I've got seven internship positions that I normally contract out the country. I love to talk to the Roots Fund about partnering and offering those internships to your scholars. Like that's a step. Or if you're a larger wine brand and you've got 10 winemakers on staff or you've got three accountants, two marketing, some digital people, how do you offer mentorship? You know, that's something totally free of charge. Our mentorship program is completely organic and super simple. Come to us and say, hey, I want to offer mentorship, you know, or I have jobs becoming available this year. Go to offering them to us first for a limited amount of time. Give us an opportunity to fill them for you and have those conversations. And like I just said in the beginning, all over again, fundraising. You know, a lot of wineries and big distributors give millions to charity every year. Millions to charities that they can't even follow up with. There's no receipt besides saying, hey, I gave this tax deductible donation. I have no idea what my money's contributing to. We actually provide stories about our scholars that you actually support. So there's actually a real human connected to it that you can actually touch base with, follow up with. We had someone donate a scholarship 
And now in the next three months, they're actually going to hire this scholar. So that to me shows that this system that we're building works, but it starts with them educating themselves first because I can't solve for that. I can't be your black square remedy. So something we talked about in our preemptive call that where we just got we're getting to know each other was that you were saying that it's not just you know the obvious jobs like you were sometimes looking for it's like sometimes it might be an accountant who mm-hmm. you know people don't necessarily associate with as the wine industry job but it's it's like hey this person actually has a passion or is interested in wine and they're good at what they do in a different sector and you could help find uh, you know candidates to come fill these roles inside that are not necessarily a traditional wine job per se yeah some of the HBCU programs we've been looking at are heavily business related accountants folks that are big in finance. And I've met a few passionate people big in finance and say, hey, you know, I drink wine. I enjoy wine a lot. I really don't know that much about the industry, but I've been summer interning at JP Morgan. Do you think there's room for me? Oh yeah, there's room for you. I could find someone in Napa, Lodi, Washington, Oregon, that would love to hire you, Finger Lakes, that are looking for folks that have great financial backgrounds that can actually learn about wine. It's actually a little bit easier to make that trade-off. So I think that we need to not keep our blinders on to think about just winemakers. You know, someone wrote us the other day, oh, is this only for winemakers? No. We have a portion of winemakers. we got a few people in marketing, quite a few people who are in wine marketing. got a couple wine journalists who want to write for publications that do blogs. We've got folks who want to be vineyard managers. We've got folks that work in the hospitality end. And despite the restaurant industry really going through a whole new reface, you still got quite a few people who want to be psalms. A lot of these big distribution companies hire wine educators. Those are people with high-level certifications, the WSET and CMS, and they need this type of skill to run their wine clubs, to educate their members who have these wine collections and boxes. So I think that there are so many outlets. It's just about telling people, these are the opportunities. We can show you how to get there if there's an interest. So what do you think are the main blockers or the main things that need to happen and come into place in order for there to be a real promotion of diversity and inclusion in the wine industry? I think it starts with creating resources and changing your hiring practices. Look at where you're bringing in people for your organization. If you're really going to change your organization, look at your employee handbook, start a nice big bonfire in front of your winery and drop the books in. And then get an HR person that actually has probably had some diversity, equity, and inclusion training that's been valuable and says, hey, I'm going to train our team. And then we're going to figure out in a room what this means to us. And then we're going to go out and attack that process. Because if you just watch the video online, you really haven't done anything if you haven't changed your systems. If you haven't looked at your employee handbook and completely rewritten it to make sure it's fair, if you haven't decided that winebusiness.com is the only place you're going to advertise your jobs, then nothing is going to change. All you're doing is checking boxes. You're not creating change. So that's really the first step, looking at your core policies. And in terms of other nonprofits that might be in this space or targeting the same money that you guys are trying to raise for your nonprofit. What do you think differentiates yourself with other nonprofits that are you know, looking at the wine industry? So we had a good diversity in wine and leadership forum. We joined the other day, led by Elaine and Miriam. And we talked about all of the organizations I think they had in the room. I think I only saw like one that was missing or maybe none that are all kind of doing what I call similar efforts. You know, I posted on our Instagram, the Wine Avengers have united. And I think what makes us different, because I learned a lot about them that day that I really didn't know. 
you know, you look at someone's website and you think you know them, but I learned a couple other things. I think what makes us different is that organizations normally take off one cause they want to fight. As a nonprofit, it's dangerous to do more than one cause. How can you fund it? How can you get it done? I think with us, you know, even recently we had Underbelly Hospitality. We're working with them with Chris Shepard and Catherine Lyre, another big hospitality organization that helps folks out of work during the pandemic and during natural disasters. And during our conversations with Catherine and I, we're just talking about how do we help this cause long term? You know, what exactly do we do to move forward? And it's about letting them know that our structure has no glass ceiling. If you come to us and you need help, we are helping in every aspect. We are not just certification-based. We're not just college-based. We're not just UC Davis-based. There are tons of community college programs around this country which are attainable to communities of color because I don't want to set them up in permanent debt. You know, the average four-year institution is 200K plus for four years. And you've got to also look at what other determining factors are in their life. How can they get to school? Who helps them buy the mini fridge? You know, that's a big deal for a lot of communities. Like, you got to get groceries. How do you get around campus if you're in a rural place? So I think with our program, we are choosing not to limit our scholars. You can really come to us with any aspect. A lot of people come to us during our program. Hey, I'm not a student. I've never been good at school. I want to be a winemaker. Great. I'm going to find you an awesome winery. It may take you two or three years more, but I'm going to find you an awesome winery with a badass winemaker who has the time to teach you. And I learned during my recent trip to Napa and Lodi, a lot of these winemakers, they aren't college educated. There are quite a few that have been blessed to have it, but a lot of them just learn working their way up. So we want to still bring back that hard work, work with your hands mentality as well. That doesn't apply in all aspects of the wine industry, but I just think that people have become comfortable because we've created this space of openness where come and tell us what you want to do. And this is how we want to support it. And I think another thing that makes us super awesome is a lot of organizations give scholarships and walk away. They write a check. You never hear about them. You never know what's going on. Occasionally, people reach out when they need something. I need a job. Can you help me? I need to increase my network. Can you help me? With us, if you fall out of touch with this office, you won't have to ghost me. I'm going to ghost you. And a nice <laughs> email that says, thanks. We'll see you around. Thanks for coming. But we create community here. Your scholarship makes you a mandatory mentorship. You know, if you get a scholarship from us and you tell me you don't have time for mentorship, then you don't have time for our scholarship. We're building a community here. You know, all of our scholars are connected. They're building their own relationships. We reach out ever so often and say, hey, how are folks doing with work? We're getting out of the pandemic. A lot of jobs coming to us. You guys get preference first. Anyone interested in these roles? I think it's an accountability feature that we have here, too, that constantly checks back in. And no matter how small our team is, it happens. You know, I can average five to eight phone calls a day with scholars. That little bit of time means a lot to their development. And I think that's important. One of the things you mentioned a little earlier was that people who give scholarships get stories back about the scholars. And I think that's a real differentiator for you as well. You, you talked about it with us earlier in our pre-call. Could you elaborate a little more on what that is? We send you back a brief synopsis of the actual scholarship that you purchase into and we do a series of testimonials from the applicants. You also get a photo of them in their bio. And more recently, in this last round, we added in some videos. So a couple of the scholars made videos. You know, some of them are very emotional to watch because you look at people who say, hey, I lost everything in the pandemic. And I reached out to the Roots Fund and they relocated me to California. And now I've got a good paying job. I've got benefits. I'm going to school. 
I'm doing things that never were achievable. Like that's, that's the real win for me. Like, it's not about, you know, anything else. And people say, I Kimmy's always looking for the money. You're right. Because it takes money to run this program. But the real win for me is to see people succeed, you know, reaching out and connecting with other organizations to kind of align where we can to create more opportunity. Those are big deals for me. I mean, I look at the whole Rooted in France program with Domaine Dijac and how someone's going to get their master's degree from an HBCU. And I look at the fact that Jeremy and Diana are taking some of our recipients for harvest over there this year. That's going to change their life. And it's not only working at Dijac that's the powerful thing. It's the fact that they've never left this country. They've never experienced anything besides their local area. So we are changing the cultural mindset of how they see the world. That creates big impact for someone in their life. That's huge. And so just talking about the scholarships as one of the core elements of the Roots Fund, what are the types of scholarships you offer? So we've got quite a few now. The list is racking up. We've got our location scholarships. So that's like the Rooted in Napa, Rooted in Burgundy. And those are location-based. I mean, someone is either working in that area, maybe receiving job placement, housing assistance, things of that nature, mentorship with us. You also have Stay Rooted in Education, which is more focused on wine business programs. So we've got a couple of people at Sonoma State, Napa Valley Wine Academy, taking advantage of that. We've got Rooted in Education, which is all certification-based. So if you're going for any type of certification, no matter what venue it is, we support you there. And we have uh, Rooted in Culture, which is about folks that want to pursue like membership organizations. So right now, hey, I'd love to be in African-American Vintners or I'd love to be in Napa Valley Vintners, but I can't afford the membership fee. But I think this will be great for my career. Those are the kind of things we support. And our newest scholarship, which launched earlier this year, is the Rooted in Wine, a Vintner story. It's in partnership with Naked Wine. It's completely badass. We are giving one of our scholars the opportunity to make their own wine, brand it, bottle it, have ownership of this product, all sponsored by Naked Wines. And I'm repeating one more time, ownership of their product, because a lot of people hear the big brand and say, oh, Naked Wines is going to own the wine. No, that person has ownership of their product. Naked Wines will distribute the first round, and that person has the right to sell their wine anywhere that they like. But more importantly, they receive the opportunity and the guidance to grow your grapes, complete the winemaking process, understand the bottling, understanding what it means to create a label, label art, how to distribute it, how to market it to your clientele. Super, super excited about working with Naked Wines on that. I think it's going to be life changing. We've talked a lot about scholarships, internships. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about job creation, like the actual ability to not just get education or educational opportunities for people, but actually an ability to create jobs with companies. Stand on a small winery, that example you gave earlier, and it's like, I happen to have these X number of jobs that I'm going to open up and, and coming to you. Like, How do you go about facilitating that and placing those? This is pretty great because we actually went through this process today with a small winery that came to us and has been super supportive to say, hey, I can hire somebody once every four years. That's great. That fourth year that's coming up to hire, I would love to post this job with you. So we've created this job board. And that's the thing. I don't want smaller businesses to feel pressure. Like I'm not doing anything. Should I fire my people who have been here because I don't have anyone of color? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm asking you to do is educate yourself and internships come a dime a dozen at all wineries. Open those up to communities of color. You need to hear another perspective in this space. This is how you're going to grow your business. If you're a small winery, you feel like you're at a stump, you're looking for another market. You've only been looking in one place. 
let's reimagine what that looks like and invite some folks into your space. So our job platform is coming open towards the end of March. And basically it's like any other service. You write in what you have, we send you a link, you fill it in, you add your job description. What we do is we actually pre-vet the candidates. So, you know, when folks are going through jobs and you're dealing with a recruiter, you may interview 20, 30 people that the recruiter says, hey, these are great. Shove them down your throat, send you 10 million emails. You're having a million interviews. None of the candidates are perfect for you. We create a conversation directly with the employer. So we know exactly what you're looking for. And those are the conversations we have with candidates in our program and say, hey, this person's an ideal candidate. So you went from sending them a random 20 to these are two great candidates, you know, and having that relationship follow up. Why weren't they selected? There needs to be accountability. No more just sending an email. Hey, you're not a fit for the job. Thank you. Apply again. Those conversations have to stop. That's a part of the system. We need to know exactly why wasn't this person selected? What could we do going forward to make sure that they are hireable in a position like this? And if companies don't want to have those conversations, you can't advertise your job with us. That's just the mantra right there. We have to be open to that communication. And that way we're going to actually grow this market and create positions that are within. And hopefully it becomes so desirable that people are like, hey, advertise with the Roots Fund. I've gotten some great candidates from there. And, you know, it's really growing our market and having this opinion on the team is really helping us. And I mean, to be honest, if wine businesses are smart and you know that the communities of color are some of the highest buying power in this country, during this time, you should have been figuring out how do I get in that community genuinely to make a market? Because if you come in just appropriating, nothing's going to work for you. People are going to sniff that out and no one's going to buy your product. Well, that feedback loop with why didn't this candidate get the job, I think is really important. And you mentioned, I think also that there's mentors and mentorship for the scholars as well. And so that can create that whole cycle, right, of feeding back to them as the candidate is looking for jobs. What do I need to do to improve to actually land the next one? Yeah. And I think with the conversations with mentors, what I like about our mentor program, everyone who's reached out to us is terrified. Oh, my God, another wine mentoring program. How many pages of paper? People laugh when I send them three questions. I know you're qualified. I've done my research on you. I know you're qualified to do the job. One, I want to make sure you're creating a safe space for someone that has had a totally different experience. You're going to share experiences with someone and hear experiences that are going to be tragic and mortifying. And you need to know how to collect that information, process it. You can't empathize. You guys have had two different experiences. You can sympathize with them, but more importantly, I want you to build them up and get them on the path to where they can go somewhere next. Encourage that movement. Share your network with that. If you're not prepared to do that, you're not a good mentor for me. The only thing we do is bi-monthly, we check in via email. Hey, how are things going? Are they a good mentor? And I tell mentors, please be prepared for mentees to say you're not a good fit for this program. I'm asking them those hard questions. I'm asking mentors, tell me about mentees that you see that aren't serious about really getting involved with the industry, but the amount of work and time that we spend matching mentors up, there's a reason why everyone is matched with who they're matched with. So um, super exciting. I mean, this next round, we're trying something even different with the mentorship approach. We're probably going to partner with Hughes Society and do some of their mentor platforms that Tahira is launching with some of our applicants from this next pool. So we're definitely trying to find a million ways to skin the cat. But so far, this one-on-one that we did the first round is proving to be very effective. I've got a couple uh, scholars who are looking for jobs and we called them up to set up interview 
mock sessions and let's revisit your resume. And all of them have come back to me and said, I, Kimmy, I think I'm good. And I'm like, no, you're not. I haven't seen any of this. I want to see this before you go out and go to these shops. And they're like, my mentor and I went through it. And, you know, we've done a mock interview. And these mentors that I've got, I've got a pretty nice selection, some high-end folks that are really, you know, experienced in the field that are helping, you know, that feel confident, that have written in already and said, hey, this person is ready. They're going to get this job. And the mentors have said to me, if they don't get it, I can me. I would like for you to reach out because I'll call over there and figure out why. <laughs> that right there is change. Yeah. That's huge. That's big. That's how I know that it's working. That's really cool. And even though you've only started in 2020 last year, you have a lot of accomplishments already under your belt from that one year. Could you talk to us about what happened in 2020? We said we were going to raise enough money for 10 scholarships. Probably was going to cost us around 100 k to get through it to be able to open the door to anything because we had some UC Davis applicants. That's kind of like buying a G-Wagon off the lot. So we were like, we got to raise some big money for that. And we exceeded our fundraising capability by 150%. We gave 30 scholarships rather than 10. And that was not imaginable even for me. So we got 30 scholars in the program that are working, you know, and that includes everything except the Vintner Story Scholarship are all sponsored and paid for the Dijak scholarship, the internship overseas. So we got quite a bit done in year one and our scholarships are open quarterly. So that's four times a year we get to create this impact. Ideally, every quarter this year will reflect 20 scholars, but I've probably got about 70 apps right now. So rather than most organizations just saying I'm finding the best 20, I've been spending my day saying I'm finding more money because I want to give more than 20. So I think I, if you look at it that way, you know, that breeds another form of success. So you said 30. Of the 30, how many are stateside versus in France? 28. Quick side topic, just because it's the entire industry. It's not just the U.S. that has this issue. The entire industry, mm-hmm. you know, the reason you're partnering with Dujac and, and some other people in France is because it's a problem everywhere. Yeah, it's definitely a problem everywhere. Let's just say in some other parts of the world, we're still, we haven't said it aloud. No one's screaming it yet but it's coming. And I think that we are creating change here. And a lot of wineries and distributors overseas have reached out to us. They're a little nervous because this could definitely shake the room, you know, and I appreciate those who have reached out. And really the only reason why we're not live internationally is because of the pandemic. If we didn't have a pandemic. I would be so knee deep in sending people overseas and that's South America to Europe. I've got people lined up ready to go. Like, we'll take people for internship. We have permanent positions. We're willing to sign up visas. It's just a matter of the pandemic. So the latter part of this year will be focused on getting people set to go overseas to live and work. And I just appreciate the wineries and the distributors. They will remain nameless for now, but a lot of announcements in the fall. But I appreciate them taking a leap because it's hard. And they're reaching out in collectors, droves of three and four that are banding together saying, hey, if we got to be first to do this, then we got to be first to do this. So, And not to skip too much into fundraising, but one of the things you were telling us about in our pre-meeting was how the Roots Fund operates very lean. And I think that's another good reason for people to choose and support. Could you elaborate on that a little for us? You've got myself, free of charge, 80 hours a week. You've got one full-time employee and two part-time employees. And our part-time program coordinator just literally handles mentorship and she's building the job board. 
the other part-time employees, our social media coordinator, everything else that we get assistance with is volunteer basis. You know, I had a digital marketing person reach out today and we had some issues with our logo and he's going to do that. I'm very transparent when people come to us. For some reason, there's this notion too that we're like rich over here at Roots Fund. Like people write us now asking for money. I'm like, guys, we don't have it. Uh, we're a nonprofit. What that means is that I just utilize all my resources. I've been working in this business for a long time. To Hera and Carlton, we utilize every friend that we have, anyone that wants to help. We appreciate guys like you having us on your podcast, help spread awareness about the work that we're doing, but we keep it lean. And a lot of nonprofits start worrying about salary positions and everything else. Our financial report will be available by the end of March on our website. Everything is out there transparent. You know, we put 70% of everything we earn to scholarships. That is also something that's not always heard of in a nonprofit space. A lot of times it's 50-50 or 60-40 to run, but we're virtual. I don't care when the pandemic's over. I'm never getting an office space. It's a waste of money. Office in your house, write me off on your taxes. That's what I prefer you to do. I'd rather buy you a really nice computer and a help your phone bill and you work from home at your own pace and get stuff done and be effective like that. So No, I mean, I think it's huge when people think about where they put their money. It's not about, always about how much money is put in, but about who's using the money the smartest way. And having that transparency is a big motivator, I can imagine, for some of the people that are donating. So let's talk 2021. So what are the big goals? Like, what are you initiatives that you're working through? You mentioned the job board already that's going to be going online. What else are we working on for 2021? Job board, high school enrichment program. We just talked to Chad McCoy of Lip Service about the language program. Being that we're going to have such an influx of people going overseas in 2022, I did it all wrong. I reached out to like the big companies, the Duolingos, the Babel, the Rosetta Stones. Like, how can we get people language tutoring? And Shah reached out to us weirdly. It was just like fate. I was so frustrated because these big companies come back and say, hey, we'll give you two memberships and you'll pay for the rest at full price. What people don't know is I'm relentless. And I laughed at all of them and hung up the phone. So Jamila's like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, oh, we're not going to give up. Something's going to happen. And Sean McCoy reached out to us and she started this lip service program, which is helping people in wine learn language. And she and I had some great conversations. So those are probably the three big initiatives this year, the job program, the high school program, as well as the language program. And we're really just gearing up for 2022 because by then, all these other things we're doing are running now. They've all created their own hamster wheels. We'll be focusing on infiltrating the international market and creating those experiences through jobs, internships, as well as trips. Because not everything is going to be about working. I've got a couple of wineries that say, hey, I'll host a group of your scholars for a week and teach them about what we do here. You know, And a lot of the great Italian wineries have reached out in New Zealand, Australia. They've all reached out and said, hey, we'd love to have a group here just to educate and hang out with us for a week. And that's great. And it's also very expensive. And I'm fortunate and blessed to say that, you know, we're gearing it up and it's working. Do you have a financial target in terms of what you're trying to do for fundraising to realize these goals? Are you allowed to say? I can say. I'm the boss. See, I can say it. <laughs> 500K for 2021. Okay. That is what we put on paper. And that will set us up for a significant portion of through 2022. But for the amount of international work I want to do, I can't just rely on the Dijak family to bring me through. You know, I've got to get some more people on board. So I'm hoping to exceed a million this year. And I think it's possible. I have no problem breathing down the backs of those who are wealthy. Really, the thing with me is, is I go to every big distributor and big wineries. I'm coming for you. They give millions to charity because it's tax deductible. 
they give millions to charity and they have no idea where it goes, but they post on their website, hey, we gave to save the children. We're saving children. We don't know where, we don't know the names, we don't know who these children are, but we gave a million to save them. I think when I go to them, the best part of it is saying, hey, I want to send 20 people to New Zealand for two weeks and this is going to help with their wine education and this is the value on it. And not only do I want you to contribute, I want to know will you contribute for five years. But I'm locking in the long game because I want to build these programs and build these relationships and know that we can't afford them. The last thing I think about every day is the money. That's going to come. I have no problem with public shaming. Look out for yourselves, people. (laughs) (laughs) You've been warned. You've been warned. Take my phone calls when I call. (laughs) So on that topic... How can people help? There's obviously donating money, but we talked about mentorship. We talked about job creation and and recruiting. What are the ways that an individual or a brand can get involved and make a difference? Yeah, I think just to clarify that mentorship, a lot of people write in, we're looking for mentors of all facets. Do not think that you are not, most people write in and says, oh, I don't think I have enough experience to mentor. If you've completed WSET level three with merit, You can add value to people who are studying WSET and want to have that same accreditation. If you're someone that runs a podcast, works in journalism, and you've been writing on wine publishing, help one of our scholars learn how to explore that career. If you've been doing vineyard management, and a lot of people think that that's a forgotten position. There are people who aspire to be like you. You can be an asset. Write into us. You know, reach out to us. We would like to hear from you. We may not get utilized right away when you come on board, but there's a space for you. We communicate clearly over time. You don't send in your information and get lost. Like we have a person solely dedicated to who you are. Same thing with jobs. If your company has positions available, don't be afraid to go to your HR person and say, hey, have you heard about this? And a lot of us work for these massive corporations, these large wine brands. Don't be afraid to say, hey, have you heard of the Roots Fund? They're doing some really great work for communities of color and wine. I know we give to charities every year. I know when I worked for a corporation, every year when we did benefits, there was a chance for you to elect if you wanted to donate some of your money to a charity. Talk to your company about saying, hey, the Roots Fund should be on that list because they're actually doing something in our community of wine. You know, so I reach out to people on that basis. And that's really the best way to help. There's a lot of just lost money that goes out there that doesn't get committed. And every little bit helps. If you're a guy that's on his couch and I'm a retired restaurateur and I was a SOM and I did great work, I love to mentor. And guess what? I had a guy write me the letter the other day and says I can only donate $100 a month. That $100 translates into $1,200. You just pay for somebody's certification at the end of the year. I mean, everybody can help. And it's not always about money. Maybe all you can give is mentorship. Maybe all you can give is sharing your network. All of it has power. I think when we become complacent and do nothing, you're just a part of the problem. Mm. Well, and one of the things that we've talked about, uh, Robert and I, and even with our guests like Peter Marks from Epa Valley Wine Academy, is the cost of doing wine education. Because it's not just the certification fee for WSET, but also the wines, if there's any travel or you know all that kind of stuff can really add up. And as Robert and I have done quite a bit of that ourselves, it, it definitely adds up. Who wrote these wine lists for these certifications? Lord, <laughs> thank you to the distributors who donated wine for folks during certification this year. Shouts out to Graph Wine Shop in Charleston and Happy Cork in Brooklyn. Sunshine and Femi have been a guiding light with helping us obtain extra wines because part of the Roots Fund Scholarship, we pay for the wines for you to take your program. 
But our level three and level four WSET, you know that the wine list and suggested is the same thing. But that right there is a perfect example of what I've been talking to about schools. You created another hurdle. You're giving them the basic wine, but you're going to spend half the class time talking about the suggested wines that <laughs> someone probably couldn't afford to buy. But you're telling me there's no disparities here. So it's like that right there is another hurdle. So we've been working on conquering that and Happy Cork and Graph and a lot of these distributors who partner with us, they've donated wines and what they haven't donated. We've been able to build some fundraising around it and purchase some of these things at a super discounted rate. And I appreciate that. That's the kind of support that we need that, you know, we truly value. And you've got a lot of big names contribute to the fund. Are there areas of the industry or others that you're waiting to step up and call out? Oh, yeah. Let's start from the top. Oh, shout out to Lodi, the Lace Collective. Lodi is becoming powerful. Michael David, Acquiesce, Clinker Brick, Boskish, all of those folks out there. I love Lodi. Definitely a hidden gem. Also extremely scary and like an old episode of Cold Case driving out there. But um, <laughs> once you get there, it's super awesome. Those people have a special place in my heart. We are building a massive program with them. I can't wait to announce it. But uh, Napa Valley, you are the Nike of wine. It's time for you to come home. I'm waiting for you. I will be there. If you're a part of Napa Vintners, which most of you are, you've seen the recent emails that have gone out in your newsletter. Uh, you should call me before I call you. <laughs> also, to let people in Napa know, I will be based out in California one to two months, probably starting towards the end of this year. So I'll just be showing up face to face. So you should probably call me now. Washington State, I haven't heard from you enough. Don't make me wait too long. I've sent quite a few emails. Uh, shout out to Arizona. They are doing the work. Finger Lakes, I love them. Everyone in Finger Lakes. I've never even been up there. These people are an amazing group in New York. They say they have the best wine, by the way. I'm just starting drama. Yeah, Finger Lakes says they have the best wine, guys. Oregon, super awesome. It's a lot of places that are awesome, but I really, I'm looking for distributors to really step it up. They give a lot to charity. I'm looking for the Napa Valley wine community. It has been awesome to us. Napa has been super awesome. I went recently on a trip. I was welcomed with open arms, but I definitely would just like to see even more engagement from them, you know, and I appreciate Carlton making the connections and putting me in the right spaces over there. But I definitely just want to ride through Napa two years from now and see some Roots Fund t-shirts and people saying, hey, I got here off the Roots Fund. You know, I'm making change and these wineries are involved. I think that'll speak volumes. You know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. that even if they're not as involved, Napa is, regardless to them, being the best wine or not, that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But I think that the world looks at them when they think about wine in this country. And I think that if they make all of the changes, this will definitely change the view of this industry and actually create some real good change long term. I have to think that some distributors who are often have more of a local presence would actually want to be donating because they're potentially building up some of their future customers by contributing into the, it so it just makes business sense to, that they should in that those areas is, you know, if you're in the South and the West and the East, like, you know, actually dialing in and say, Hey, I want to help fund someone in my area because at some point it's going to benefit them, but also, you know, there's going to build some goodwill. Like that, that seems like a no brainer for some of those people to have maybe some creative leeway with how they can help out. Yeah, I think the word's getting around. I mean, Kermit Lynch has been a great supporter. Sorting Table has been a great supporter. I truly appreciate Linda and her team at Napa Ventners. You know, they definitely give a lot to charity, but they were publishing us in their newsletters and kind of getting the word out to folks that may not have seen us. And like I said before, even if you're a small winery, there's so many ways that you can help. 
And don't just wait till Black History Month because I'm, I'm writing a list of those who do that. <laughs> it's not a good list. It's the naughty list. <laughs> we'll definitely uh, put the donation link in our show notes for people who, who do want to contribute financially. But for those who, who don't go to the show notes, it's uh, www.therootsfund.org backslash make hyphen a hyphen donation. And we'll have the link in the show notes. That's awesome. And we're probably going to do a raffle for Women's History Month. So be on the lookout for that. we got some good wines over here to donate to that raffle. Nice. Great. Yeah, we're, we're, we're planning on doing an interview with uh, Bathanage Forum as well to cover some of the, awesome the, the group females. There. Awesome group. Yeah. So with every guest, we always ask this final wrap-up question. What do you see as a lasting trend in a fizzling fad in regards to inclusivity in the wine industry? All right, lasting trend. Social media. I think the pandemic has drummed this up. I've been to several virtual tastings that have been exciting, phenomenal. I'm jumping around my kitchen with my laptop because I'm having such a good time. I think that I've been turned on to more wines and just beverages in general through watching people make them on videos, through talking about them. That short, quick, you know, excitement you get with a quick Instagram reel or a Facebook live and someone's just sitting in their house and they're drinking wine and you're drinking wine. It's super casual, more open. And I think people are becoming more attracted to that. So not saying I don't want to be outside again, because I do. But I just love that once we're outside again, if it's a weeknight and I don't want to go to a tasting, that I know that I can sign up and take one online at a very affordable rate and order in my wine and still have a great experience. So I think that's a lasting trend that definitely is going to stay. I wish I would have took some stock in Zoom prior to this. <laughs> Jesus. Don't we all? We all, we all did the wrong thing. Zoom, we should have took stock in. Uber conference, we should have took stock in that. Fizzling fad, is that what it is? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep, fizzling fad. All right, hold on to your seats, folks. The old white guy's got to go. <laughs> Who was the old white guy? Robert, the old right? white guy, a.k.a. <laughs> the man. Okay, you ever have somebody say, I work for the man, but no one ever... I remember when I was a kid, I used to ask my dad, who is the man? Why do you always see him going to work for him? Like, can the man come over for dinner? I say the old white guy because we think about these systems that have been put in place. Someone designed them and said, hey, this is the way we operate in the world, and it's done no service for all people. If it doesn't work for all people, it's a bad system. So the old white guy has to go. Like I said with inclusivity, stop trying to bring people into your current space. Your current space is trash. It needs to be in a bonfire. You need to create new spaces. You need more opinions. It's going to increase your market. It's going to just make the wine industry a better place. I think all of that is what's important. And that's what's really going to create some change. And the last time I checked, the wine industry likes to make money. So this is a good move. And more importantly, it's the humanly right thing to do. We're in the middle of a movement. And let me let you know, these young adults that we have now are fiery, man. They're not letting up. They're not going away. This is not something that's going to be swept under the rug. They're out here. They're knowledgeable. They're voting. They're taking place and creating space. So I think we just need to support them and be a part of that. And aren't we tired of the same old things? It's getting kind of boring. Forget the man. Let's do something different. Let's get the one man. There you go. (laughs) That's the new white guy. The one man. (laughs) Kimi, I want to thank you for your time. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot about the organization and how people can contribute. And I really appreciate everything you're doing, how lean you guys are and how that, that I know that, 
anybody who's helping out, whether it's financially or with jobs, that really is making a difference and I appreciate everything you do. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. This is awesome. I appreciate you all. Just let everybody know scholarships are open right now, general scholarships. The HBCU, the main the Jacques Burgundy School of Business program opened two days ago. So if you go to HBCU, even if you're not a current bachelor's student, if you're an alumni, you can still qualify to apply. So please check that out. And Robert and Peter don't know it yet, but our first fundraiser is in the spring and I've already signed them up to MC the event and they committed. <laughs> because I just I just I just said that they committed. Um they don't even know that they committed. But it'll be in Napa. It'll be in March. We'll be back outside again. Everyone will be vaccinated. The world will be great. It is news to them, but they will be um, on the microphone doing some MC things. I'm thinking Peter can be by the door. We'll keep Robert in the main <laughs> room, and then they can come together and do a little, maybe a live podcast in there. Who knows? There'll be yeah, some big fun. people in the room. They yeah, won't want to miss this. So work. it's going to be a big deal. Carlton told me you were a force of nature, and just uh, he's just like, I just do what she says. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. And I hope, I hope the world doesn't see me as it's just, I'm passionate about the work that we're doing and I'm committed to this cause and by any means necessary, it's going to work out. And I really hope more people contact us and reach out because I hope, you know, you're really making change here. I appreciate you. Comes across as straight passion. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.